Well, beginning the year is a natural time for us to reflect, reflect on this past year and reflect on the year ahead, to think about how we've been doing, how we did last year, how, how we hope to do in the year to come, to think about things like our family and our schedule, even our health. People, of course, think about their weight and their exercise. People think about their budgets. There are people certainly who think about taxes. They think about all kinds of things around this time of the year. That's sort of natural for us. And obviously at the top of that list of all those things that we reflect on, of all those things that we evaluate at the top ought to be our spiritual lives, an assessment, a contemplation of how we're doing. And Scripture's full of admonitions for us to do that, to examine ourselves and to test ourselves, to measure ourselves, if you will, not against some man-made scheme or standard or not against even outward achievements or praise of men, accolades or any of those. The measuring stick that always is presented to us is the standard of Christ, the example of our Savior. He's the one to whose image were to be conformed. He's the one that we are followers of and disciples of. He's the one that we're endeavoring to be like. Jesus said, everyone, when they're fully trained, will be like their master, like their teacher. That's the pathway and the goal that we are pursuing. We're always to be in this process of transformation from glory to glory, always gazing into the face of Christ and being transformed from one glory to the next by his glorious spirit. Well, that in mind, I want to help us this morning with a little spiritual assessment, a little spiritual measurement, if you will, a time of examination. Take a moment to look, if you will, into a day in the life of Christ and take an assessment of the priorities in his life, the things which sort of motivated and drove him in his own mindsets, and his own attitudes. And, and this is not so much a look at his particular activities as much as it is those attitudes and those mindsets that I think that Mark gives us a peek into. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 1, where we have a section of Scripture, a brief account in the life of Christ. It was a remarkable day in the sense that every day in the life of Christ was certainly remarkable, but in some ways it was, we might say, an unremarkable moment. That is to say that Mark gives us here a glimpse backstage, if you will, outside of all of the hustle and bustle of ministry and outside of all the crowds and all the push and all of those things, Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us a little glimpse into the private life of our Savior, the, the intimate life, the things which he committed himself to when people weren't necessarily looking, those things which were at his core and drove him. Mark writes, beginning in verse 35 of Mark 1, rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The setting for this is Sunday morning, the morning after the Sabbath day which in Israel would have been the beginning of their week this Sunday. It was like their Monday. This was the time after the Sabbath when particularly the Lord had had a very busy ministry. He had begun the day confronting a demon-possessed man in the synagogue and casting out the demon who himself was confronting Christ. That was followed by an invitation to a Sabbath meal in Peter's home, we're told by Mark, that others joined them, Andrew, James, and John, no doubt their families as well. It was in the home of Peter, and as was the custom in that day, there wasn't necessarily a lot of cooking. They didn't cook on the Sabbath day. That was against the, the, the law, uh, the, the Mosaic law, but they would have been 
making preparations. There would have been mixing of foods that have been uh, prepared the day before and stuffing of breads and the mixing of the wine with the water and all those things which would have normally taken place in the preparation for the meal carried out by the women of the house. In this particular case, the chief woman, you might say, was Peter's mother-in-law, the mother of his wife. Peter was, of course, married, despite what Roman Catholicism tries to teach. We're told throughout Scripture that he has a wife, that he has a mother-in-law, and in this particular situation, the mother of his wife was very ill. She was sick with a high fever, and though she would have normally been preparing the meal, she wasn't able to, and in these days, this was a very threatening illness. There was no ibuprofen. There was nothing to reduce her fever. And so the fever itself could have been very fatal. We're told, however, the Lord had healed her immediately. And just spontaneously, it's unlike the so-called faith healers of today. There was no recuperative period. It wasn't like she gradually got over her fever. The scripture says the Lord simply went and took her hand and lifted her up. And she was immediately well and served them. And this was the way the Lord always healed. He healed instantaneously. He healed powerfully as a demonstration that this was no con. This was the work of, this was the work of God. And so it would have been a time of rejoicing. It would have been a time of tender love and fellowship. No doubt around the table that day, glorying at God's goodness in their life and in their home And then as the day wore on, we're told that people, as the Sabbath rest subsided and as sun began to set, people came out of their homes and they gathered in the courtyard and at the doorway of Peter. And we're told that the whole city, that's what Mark says in verse 33, the whole city gathered at Peter's door, bringing all kinds of sick people and people possessed of demons. And Jesus healed every one of them and cast out their demons. He didn't turn anyone away. There was no secret selection committee who was screening people at the door and bringing only the easiest cases to him to be healed. None of those kinds of tricks or gimmicks. This was power demonstrated in the eyes of everyone. And so it's not surprising as you come to verse 37 here. At the end of verse 37, as Peter comes and seeks Christ, he says, everyone is looking for you. This is every preacher's dream. This is every evangelist's dream. I mean, everyone who ever wanted to share their faith is looking for this street, right? This is the one they want to walk down where people are gathered and waiting to hear what you have to say. Tremendous amount of ministry that lay ahead, tremendous opportunities, lots of tasks, lots of people, a lot to do. And yet it's against this backdrop and all this hustle and bustle that you most clearly see the priorities of our Savior. The model of the priorities that compelled him in all of this outward activity. And they're pretty clearly laid out for us here. There there are three attitudes, three mindsets, three priorities here, whatever that that we need to take note of. The first one is in verse 35, and it was his priority of prayer. His priority of prayer. Mark tells us that rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, that he departed and went to a desolate place and there prayed. Terminology that Mark uses indicates that this was probably 3 or 4 a.m. And Jesus was getting up early, very early, in order to avoid all of the distraction of the crowds, all the other people, in order to provide himself adequate time in order to pray like he needed. In fact, Luke If you were to look in Luke's gospel, chapter 5, verse 16, he tells us that Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. It maybe wasn't everything, something he could do every day, a luxury that he had in that sense, but we're told that he would often do it. And those are participles, present participles, indicating this was continuous activity. He was always doing this throughout his ministry. This wasn't just some special season in his early life. These were apparently times and seasons when the Lord would do this all the time. A step aside from the activities of life and give hours, 
hours to prayer. This obviously wasn't because he was burdened with some issue of sin. Jesus didn't do this because he somehow drifted into a season where he felt like there was some broken fellowship with God, some barrier, some wall, that he just needed to lay everything down and get this right, that this was finally pressing on him because he had some sense of guilt or remorse and he just needed to come and clear all of that stuff. That's not what this is about. And maybe for some people, that's the only thing that could drive him to this kind of prayer. But Christ, of course, had no sin. He had no guilt. He had perfect, unbroken fellowship with God. And yet still, even in the robust fellowship that he had with the, with the Father, he still felt compelled to take these extended seasons of particular fellowship, unique, secluded. It wasn't enough for Christ to simply revel in the, in the communion that he had with God In the corporate environment, while everyone was around or singing the praises in the congregation, it wouldn't have been enough for Christ to lift up a prayer on the way to work as he drove through traffic or to have a prayer around his dinner table. It wouldn't have been enough for him to take a few moments in the morning before he walked out the door. These were yearnings in his heart pouring out to his father praise and adoration and thanksgiving and casting his burdens on the father. Jesus, no doubt, this day had much to praise God about regarding the Sabbath and all that he had done in the day before. Jesus' prayers would have been filled with this kind of glorying in God. Matter of fact, you don't really need to doubt that. You could go and read one of Jesus' prayers in John 17 and see that for yourself. You could see how his prayers were consumed with the glory of God. How he would take time away from other activities, away from other people. And he would dedicate time to do nothing but lift up praise to God. You could see that not only in John 17, but just simply by Jesus' own familiarity with the Psalms, which he quoted as much as any other part of the Old Testament. He was very familiar with them. And they themselves are heavily dedicated to simply praising God. You can see that even in the disciples' prayer, which he taught his disciples when he told them to begin their prayers by hallowing God's name, by setting him apart in his attributes, giving thanks to him. Jesus was always withdrawing from the crowds, finding a place alone. To some, it might seem cold, to some, it might seem aloof. When people are begging and there was no doubt some who felt very desperate in their need to be with Christ. They had sick loved ones and sick family members. There might be some who would even accuse him of being insensitive during these times because he didn't make himself fully available. Jesus wouldn't fall into any of that deception though. Let people accuse him of ignoring them and their needs. Putting off what they felt was so important. Jesus wouldn't sacrifice his intimacy with God even for those things. For Jesus' fellowship with God was paramount. And he was willing to deprive and disappoint crowds of adoring people, clamoring for his time in order to find this kind of special time with his father. He knew that the type of fellowship with God that God desires and the ones in whom God takes delight, those servants in whom he takes delight are not the ones who lift up occasional perfunctory prayers It's it's not those who pray, in other words, when they get a break. It's those who break away in order to pray. Those who find a place, they make the time, they clear out the concerns, 
They demand of themselves this kind of dedicated prayer. It takes that. I mean, if, if this is true for Christ, how much more for us in our feeble weakness and the frailty of our own minds when it takes, sometimes for me, it may take 30 minutes to clear my head of everything that's going on. The Puritans used to talk about praying until you pray. They understood that there is a weakness in ourselves that we have to overcome as we come before the Lord and we have to constantly do battle with all of the things that want to crowd out the glory of God and the praise that's due to Him and really relying on Him. How much more we, in the weakness of our own flesh and our own sin, need to dedicate this time if our Savior and our Master did. One old Puritan saint wrote this, he says, In prayer I am lifted up above the frowns and flatteries of life and taste heavenly joys. Entering into the eternal world, I can give myself to thee thee with all my heart and to be thine forever. That's the goal. It's not to check some category off your list, some, some task for the day. It's not to lift up a few burdens on your heart, it is to lift yourself out of the temporal and take yourself into the eternal. And it ought to be your desire to do that every day. That's the only way really to live. It's the only way really to keep the kind of focus and the kind of mindset that all of us need. Regular, extensive, protracted times of praise and communion with God. Renewing our vision of Him. Renewing our vision of His kingdom. Renewing our vision of what is important. What is eternal. And we'd be foolish to imagine that our minds could ever stay true apart from that. That's why the Bible exhorts you, pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. Why Paul could say to people over and over again, I pray for you over and over again. I pray for you all the time. Peter tells us to cast all your care on Him. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart, Jesus says. All these warnings, all these exhortations, because the Scripture is aware of, God is aware that all the pressures of life push you in the exact opposite direction. There's another mindset from Christ here by which we can measure ourselves, not only the priority of prayer, but his sense of purpose. Mark tells us in verse 36 that Simon and others came searching for Christ. In verse 37, they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. That's why I came forth, as one version says. So along with a deep sense of his dependence on God, this is another mindset of Christ. There was a deep sense of purpose. He didn't look at life or his life as some random act. He just sort of fell into day by day. He didn't think about the future with some aimless or pointless sense of journey. He had a deep sense that every day had meaning, and that meaning was to give glory to God, to speak of His salvation, and to proclaim His mercies. He felt like that is why He's here. It's interesting here is that when you harmonize the account from Luke with what Mark's telling us here, you realize that just one week earlier, Jesus had been in His hometown of Nazareth. And he had ministered there as well, except he had a completely different reception. He spoke in the Sabbath that day. He announced his ministry. He read from the book of Isaiah. And their response, while first being amazed, when they realized what he was saying, they seized him, drug him out into the street to the edge of their city, which sat on a cliff, and they were prepared to throw him over it. Can't imagine that they're wasn't a temptation then 
when everyone in Capernaum now wants him. They want him to stay. They're all looking for him. The crowd seemingly loved him. There was popularity at this moment. There was security. There was comfort. This was a, this was a nice place to minister. Even Peter seemed to be caught up in the euphoria of the moment. He, according to Luke, he begged Christ to stay here in Capernaum. But Jesus looked beyond all that. He knew there was ministry even beyond the popularity. He knew even the wave uh, of popularity that was swelling and all the exhilaration of the adoring crowds wasn't the main reason why he came. It wasn't to find the most comfortable place to minister and to minister there. It wasn't to find the most popular place and to plant himself there. It meant also going to difficult places. It meant less adoring crowds. It meant hardship. It meant rejection. Christ knew the call of God. He had a sense of purpose and he knew that to make God's word known, you had to go to these places as well. And this was the mindset that he had. This was the mindset of every faithful servant. They don't look at their life as their own. They feel a sense of divine obligation, a sense of divine calling, a sense of divine purpose. And if we are to be like our master when we're fully trained, as Jesus says, we too have to have that. Paul told the Ephesian elders, he says, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I might finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. A sense of stewardship. We speak about it many times here. This thing that we need to develop in our own hearts, that we are not masters of our own lives. We're not the, we're not the owners of our own time. We're slaves. We're servants. We're ministers, and it's not just pastors. It's not just those who are paid by the church or those who are called and set apart as elders and those who are maybe just teachers. It's not just those. Every one of us, Peter speaks himself about every one of us having a stewardship. Each has received a gift. We're to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, he says. Jesus would tell, tell parables about his disciples and he would use the image of stewards and people who were given trusts. He spoke about investing what was given to you, making wise use of your time until his return. This was the mindset of our Savior, the standard by which we measure ourselves. A divine mandate and a submission to God's will was a constant in his life. He spoke of it. It drove him even beyond the comfortable places. And eventually he committed it to you and I. He would say before he ascended, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. This is the mindset of Christ. It's a mindset by which we ought to be measuring ourselves. It's a mindset that we ought to be evaluating our past year with. And it leads naturally to the third attitude, the third mindset that Christ had in verse 39, which was his commitment to proclamation, his commitment to preaching. Mark tells us that Jesus went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is just the natural consequence of that sense of purpose, that he was committed to proclaiming the good news, to preaching it everywhere. Peter had told him that everyone wanted him back in Capernaum. They were waiting for him. He was begging Jesus to do that. Trying to convince him not to leave. See, Peter didn't understand Jesus' commitments here. People today don't understand Jesus' commitment. 
he was committed to proclamation. Even his healing was about that. You understand? Jesus' goal, in other words, was not to heal every single person in Capernaum. If that was his goal, he would have returned there. That's the way people want to construe Christ. It's all about compassion. It's all about, it's all about going out and helping the weak. It's all about those uh, kind of uh, mercy ministries. And certainly that was an element to Christ's life, and it's an element to what we need to be about, but that's not the main thing. Even the healing was all a part of the message. We're told that it was his miracles which attested to or gave evidence of who he was. And that was the main point for him. He he saw his time. He understood his existence to be for that purpose. And so he would go out. And he would proclaim wherever he needed to in order to make that message clear. In this case, Jesus knew that plenty of people wanted him in Capernaum. He knew there were still people bringing sick friends and relatives. Peter thought that this was what ministry was all about. He wanted Jesus to hang around here, but this wasn't just about healing. This was about proclamation. And the message had been proclaimed. Capernaum had heard the message. And so for Jesus, it's time to move on. You see, this is how committed he was to this proclamation. Another way to say this is he would not be satisfied apart from following through on this commitment to proclaim. Jesus wouldn't grow comfortable in some spot without soon feeling the burden that there's more places who need to hear the gospel. There's more people who haven't been told. He couldn't just settle into a place where everyone was giving him accolades and everyone was wanting him there. I think it's a heavy burden on all of our hearts as we look back at this past year and we think about our own proclamation of the gospel. We measure ourselves and we evaluate ourselves and we ask ourselves, where have we proclaimed his name? Who are the people that we have introduced him to? Is there anyone, even one, this past year? That we, under the burden of our responsibility, have gone out and found and proclaimed the glories and the excellencies of Christ. For Christ, having this message and confining it to the borders of Capernaum would have been unthinkable. There was a sense of urgency to find somewhere else, someone else, some other group, some other place that still needed to hear. And so Mark tells us that he didn't return to Capernaum. Instead, he went through all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out their demons. I read an interesting story a while back. Many years ago, an Italian recluse was found dead in his house. He had lived frugally all of his life. But friends growing through his house to sort out his few possessions, this frugal man, they found that he had accumulated 246 very expensive violins, all crammed into his attic, as a matter of fact. A few were stored in dresser drawers of the bedroom, but the bulk of them were in the attic. Virtually all of his money, it seems, had been spent buying violins, and yet his misdirected devotion to the instrument, ironically, robbed the world of its beautiful sounds. Because he selfishly treasured the violins, but he apparently never heard the music that was meant to come from them. It's even reported The first violin that the great Stradivarius ever made was not played for 147 years. We hear that and we think, that's a shame. That's no more of a shame than us having the treasure of the gospel, stowing it away in our homes and in our hearts, never letting the world hear the music 
That's we so beloved, right? Stashing away our great treasure, not sharing the light, not giving the bread to those who are hungry, not giving the treasure to those who are impoverished. Some researchers estimate that as many as 95% of Christians never share their faith in the course of a year. If that's true of 95% of the world's spiritual violins, then 95% of the beautiful music that's meant to be played is not being played. 95% of us need to measure ourselves again by Christ. 95% of us need to be conformed to our master and our maker. We need to recapture a sense of divine purpose, divine mandate to preach, the priority of prayer. As a matter of fact, it may not be a coincidence that it is right on the heels of this dedicated time of prayer when Peter stumbles upon Christ here after searching for him, it may not be a coincidence that it's then his mind is so riveted to his purpose and his preaching because no doubt it flowed out of his communion with the Father. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for reminders like this, thankful for Times to reflect and certainly burdened in areas where we fall short. Lord, I pray that as we evaluate other things in our life, as we make commitments and resolutions, as we try to alter patterns and commitments in our life, I pray that above every one of them would be a readiness to alter our patterns of communion with you if they fall short. Our patterns of proclamation If we haven't measured up our deep sense of the purpose for which you've made us and called us and the stewardship which you've committed to us. Lord, give us fresh eyes and enlivened hearts to feel all these things. Help us to look again into the face of our Savior and be transformed again by him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the beginning of the year is a natural time for all of us to reflect back on this past year, to think about what has happened, to even look ahead and think about what is to come. People do that almost naturally at this time of the year. They think about things. They think about their schedule. They think about their family. They think about their plans. There are certainly people who think about their health. Obviously, people think about their weight. They may not think very longly, long about it, but they think about it. They think about their finances, their budget. There are certainly people who think about taxes, all kinds of things that people think about at this time of the year. That is just sort of natural. And obviously, at the top of that list ought to be some reflection on our spiritual lives, on where we stand with God, on where we stand in our own walk with God, or to take sort of an assessment or a measurement about ourselves, to contemplate how we're doing. Scripture is, of course, full of exhortations to do just that, to examine ourselves, 
to test ourselves, to see how we're doing, to measure ourselves, to measure ourselves against a standard and to see how we measure up. That standard, of course, is not the praise of men or accolades or even accomplishments. It's not some man-made standard. The standard that's always set before us is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our example. He's the one to whom whose image were to be conformed. He is the one who we are followers of and disciples of. And Jesus said that every person, when they're fully trained, will be like their teacher. They will grow in conformity to him. And so we're always in this process of examining ourselves next to Christ. We're always in this process of being transformed from glory to glory, always gazing into the image of Christ and and being transformed by His Spirit. With that in mind, I want to help us this morning with a little spiritual assessment, a little self-examination, a little spiritual measurement, if you will, to take a moment to look into the life of Christ and then assess the priorities that He Himself had, not so much in His activities or His tasks, but more in His attitudes, more in His mindsets. Those things which sort of drove him and prioritized his day and the things which determined his direction. And to do that, I want us to look this morning at Mark chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Mark chapter 1. It gives us a brief account in, a, in the day, a day of the life of Christ. It is, of course, a remarkable day in the sense that every day recorded for us in Scripture in the life of Christ was a remarkable day. But in some ways, these verses give us an unremarkable moment. That is to say, they kind of take us backstage a little bit. Outside of the spotlight and outside of the crowds and outside of all the hustle and bustle of ministry, all of the pressures and all those things, they take us to a more quiet moment, you might say, a more private moment in the life of Christ. And I think it's here when we see, beyond all the activity that he had, we see what really drives him. What really were his priorities? What were his mindsets and his attitudes? Mark writes, beginning in verse 35 of Mark 1, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that's why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The setting for this is a Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath beginning in Israel for the work week, it would be like our Monday morning. And it had been a busy, very busy Sabbath for our Savior. He began, as most Jews did, in a synagogue. But with him, there was a confrontation. A demon-possessed man showed up to confront him, and Christ ended up casting the demon out of him. That was followed by a Sabbath meal at the house of Peter, We're told that others came probably with their families, Andrew, James, and John. It would have been a full place, a full house, and people would have been no doubt chattering about the events of that morning. But there was also some trepidation in the house because Peter's mother-in-law, the mother of his wife, was deathly sick. She had a high fever, we're told. In those days, before ibuprofen and before all our modern medications, this would have been a dangerous situation. Uh, uh, Fevers could kill someone in those days. Normally, she would have been up and serving. They wouldn't have cooked because on the Sabbath, it was against Mosaic law to light a fire. And so you wouldn't cook on the Sabbath, but you would take these pre-cooked meals and you would do the final preparations and the mixing in of all the remaining ingredients, the stuffing of some breads, the mixing of the water and wine and getting everything ready for people at the table. And she, as the chief lady of the house, would have been heavily involved with this, but she was laid up in bed with this sickness And we're told that Jesus, when he came, was told about the sickness, and he went into a room and healed her. Immediately, 
spontaneously, not like the so-called uh, the, the charlatans and pseudo-healers of today. There was no recuperative period. She didn't need hours to kind of get her strength. In fact, the scripture says that Jesus took her by the hand and raised her up, and immediately she was serving the entire party. This was no gimmick here. This, there was no... Uh, smoke and mirrors. This was a true healing and it would have brought rejoicing. It would have brought a deeper sense of tender love and fellowship to the table. It would have been a very special afternoon after a very spectacular morning. And then, of course, as the sun set, as the Sabbath day and all the restrictions on Sabbath travel subsided, Peter, excuse me, Mark tells us in verse 33 that the whole city began to gather at the doorway the courtyard of Peter's house. Everyone was bringing their sick friends and loved ones. Everyone was coming in order to get the healing. And there was no screening committee. There was no one to kind of pick out the hard cases and and shush them off to the side. The scripture tells us that Jesus healed every one of them. Every single person who came, he healed them. This was miraculous. It was divine. It was unquestionable. Everyone would have known it. This was clear attestation, clear testimony to who this man was. A clear indication to this city of Capernaum that this was, in fact, a servant of the Lord, a spokesman for God, one who is a prophet and maybe more than a prophet. A spectacular day. And so it's not surprising That as the next day begins, we read in verse 37, at the end of verse 37, Peter, going out looking for Jesus, says to him, everyone is looking for you. This is every preacher's dream, right? This is every evangelist's dream. Everyone who has a desire to share their faith, this this is the street that they want to walk down. They want to find that street where everyone's sort of lined up and waiting on you to come tell the story, come do whatever. This is, this is what everyone's looking for, all their hopes and everything. It's a tremendous amount of ministry uh, uh, that's laying ahead there, a tremendous amount of opportunity, a lot of task, a lot of people, a lot of things to do. There is in- incredible pressure, no doubt, even. And yet it's against the backdrop of all this hustle and bustle that we most clearly see the priorities of our Savior. The model of what compelled him, of what really was his mindset. It wasn't the outward activity that most defined him. It was these inner commitments. And they're pretty clearly laid out for us here, I believe. Beginning in verse 35, we see, first of all, he had a priority of prayer. A priority of prayer. Mark tells us that rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. The terminology by Mark indicating that it was before the sun rose indicates that this was probably 3 or 4 a.m. Jesus was getting up early to avoid the crowds and all the other people and to provide himself with the adequate time to pray that he knew was necessary. Now, Luke 5 tells us that Jesus would often do this. He says in Luke 5, 16, Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. It obviously maybe wasn't something he could do every single day, but it was a regular pattern of his life. These are present participles in Luke 5, 16, indicating this was just a continuous thing. He was always doing this. There were apparently always seasons and times when the Lord would step aside from all the activity of his life. And all the challenges of his life, there were times he would step away and give literally hours to prayer. And this wasn't because that he reached points in his life where he felt disconnected from God. And sometimes we're that way. I mean, we go into seasons of prayer, but it might be because somehow there's some sin issue, something that we need to confess, some sense of guilt, some need that we have a, a, of, of having a cleansing and, and being restored in some way. And so just the burden of that kind of guilt sometimes might drive us to more serious seasons of prayer. But that wasn't the case for the Savior. He had no sin. There was no guilt. 
There was no unbroken communion with God. There was nothing but constant fellowship between him and God the Father all the time. There was no sense that something needed to be made right. And these weren't the things that were driving him out to these seasons. Now there was a yearning in his heart still. Even in spite of the unbroken communion he had. There was a yearning in his heart still for special times of fellowship and communion. See, for Christ, it wasn't enough to just have sort of fellowship in the group. It wasn't enough just to sort of have communion with God in the crowd. He would not have been satisfied with a, a prayer on the way to work or a few moments set aside in the morning. This wasn't enough for him. He knew, he understood the need for times of pouring out his heart and his life in praise and honor to God the Father and to His glory. Jesus, no doubt, would have taken time this day to pour out praise to God for everything that had been done that Sabbath day. All the wonderful works that had been accomplished, the way that God had been glorified, the way that God had confirmed Him as the Messiah. We know that these were the particular focuses of Jesus' prayer by the very fact that we have some of his prayers. Even John 17, if you have any question about what the content of Jesus' prayers were, just read that. It is a prayer that's consumed with the attributes and the glory of God. It's consumed with declaring God's praises and setting him apart in our hearts and minds. In fact, this is what Jesus taught us to pray in the, in, the, in the disciples' prayer. Some people call it the Lord's Prayer. When he teaches us that we ought to begin our prayer times by hallowing God's name, by declaring his throne and his power, his majesty. Even the many times that Jesus quotes the Psalms, one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament books, you might say, that Jesus quoted from tells us that he was very familiar with the Psalms and many of them themselves reflect an intense Godward focus. In other words, these weren't prayers that were consumed with what may normally consume even our prayers, which would be perhaps times of confession or maybe pouring out of once. These would have been prayers that were extended seasons of just communing with God. Jesus was always withdrawing from the crowds to find some place alone to do this. Some extended time of fellowship and communion. Some people might have perceived that as maybe insensitive. Maybe they would have perceived it as potentially cold and and unloving. Some might think that he was ignoring the desperate needs that were pressing against him. People that would have no doubt felt very intensely their desire and uh, expectation that Jesus would come to meet their need. They had sick family members. They had loved ones who were in dire need. They wanted to have time with Christ. They wanted to be with Christ. There might have been some who would have somehow suggested that he was he was insensitive to all these things. Some might accuse him of being too too spiritually minded or heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. Jesus himself, however, wouldn't fall into that deception. He would endure even these kinds of silly accusations because he would not sacrifice his intimacy with God on the furnace of service to others. For Jesus' fellowship was paramount. Clearly a high priority for undistracted, uninterrupted times of prayer. And he was willing to disappoint, deprive crowds of adoring people in order to find this kind of special time with God. See, Jesus knew this is the kind of servants that God looks for. This is the kind of fellowship that God desires. He takes delight in, in the ones not who just pray along the road, but those who pray alone in these extended times. It's not those who pray when they get a break. It's those who break away to pray. 
Jesus understood these things. And so he's very clearly concerned that he have this time of connection with God. And how much more for us who don't have sinless hearts and don't have sinless bodies, who often, when we go into times of prayer, have to fight through all kinds of false motives and and distracted thoughts and idols that are in our heart. The Puritans used to speak about praying until you pray. That is to say, they understood that whenever you go before the Lord in prayer, it may take some extensive time for you to clear all the clouds of distraction out of your mind until you get to the place where you're finally consumed with God. And I don't know about you, but for me, that may be 30 minutes sometimes to just sort of clear all that stuff out until I finally get to the place where I feel like I can, I can actually pray like I'm supposed to. One, one old Puritan wrote this. He says, I, in prayer, I lift, I'm lifted above the frowns and flatteries of life and taste heavenly joys. Entering into eternal, the eternal world, I can give myself to you with all my heart to be yours forever. See, this is really the goal of prayer. The goal of prayer is not to just tick off some duty that you've done for the day. It's not just to, just to spout out a few needs that you might have. This is the goal of prayer. It is to lift you out of this temporal world and to set your mind and your life on the eternal. To constantly be dragging yourself up out of all these things that, that distract you during the day and to place your mind in heaven where it ought to be. This is what Colossians talks about, setting our mind on things above, not on things of the earth, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I mean, if Christ needed hours on a regular basis to do this, how much more, you and I, how much more in our weakness ought we to be prioritizing these times to lift our hearts to heaven? And out of the muck and mire of this life. God delights in these kinds of regular, extensive, protracted times of communion. And it wasn't because Christ was on vacation. It wasn't because his schedule was easy. It wasn't because there were no demands on him. It's simply because he had the burden for these kinds of times with God. There's another mindset here by which we can measure ourselves. Another prior, another priority, along with prayer, we could say that he also had, secondly, a sense of purpose. This was the mindset, this was the attitude that clearly comes out in this passage. Mark, verse 36, he tells us that Simon and others came searching for Christ. And in verse 37, they found They found him, excuse me, and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. That's why I came forth. That's why I came out. Some people translate it. So along with a deep sense of dependence on God, there was another mindset of Christ here. It was a deep sense of purpose. He didn't look at his life as some random act, some sort of aimless journey that he's on that, that uh, you know, really he's trying to find his way. He had a deep sense that every day had meaning and that meaning was giving glory to God and speaking of his salvation. He had a deep sense of that. And what's interesting to me is as you harmonize what Mark is telling us here in chapter 1 with the account of Luke, you realize that this is now one week removed from a period of time when Jesus was in Nazareth, his hometown. And his time in Nazareth was very different from his time in Capernaum. In fact, when he went to Nazareth, he went to the synagogue there, he stood up and he began to proclaim his message and his ministry, and there was initial amazement in his words, but very soon it turned to animosity, and the people reacted violently against him. In fact, they stopped him, drug him out into the street outside their city because it sat on the ledge of a cliff, and they were going to throw him over the cliff and kill him. 
Very different response. And you can't imagine that there wasn't a temptation to just want to stay now in Capernaum. Where the crowd seemed to love him, where there seemed to be popularity. Even Peter seemed to be caught up in the euphoria of the moment because he is telling them here that everyone's looking for him. If you read Luke's account, he's begging Jesus to stay, to remain. I mean, he thought this is what ministry is all about. Jesus looked beyond all that, though. He knew there was ministry even beyond the wave of popularity that was swelling around him. He knew that there was a need to even go beyond the exhilaration of adoring crowds, the comfortable places when they're all pleased with him. He knew that meant going beyond this level of security, you might say, in Capernaum and going out to more difficult places, less adoring crowds. He knew that this meant hardship. It meant rejection. Christ knew all of these things, and yet he had the call of God. That's why he says, look, we got to go somewhere else. We got to go to other cities. We can't just stay here all the time because this is comfortable. This is easy. Everyone's happy with us. This is the mindset of faithful servants of God. They look at their life this way. They look at their life as a a divine calling and an obligation and a purpose. Paul told the Ephesian elders, I don't consider my life on any account as dear to myself in order that I might finish my course and the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. There was a sense of stewardship. We talk about that often from this pulpit, how we need to embrace the fact that we're not our own, that we don't have sort of freedom in our lives to just sort of become whatever we want to be. We are at the heart and core of our purpose in life to be proclaimers, to be those who are giving glory to God. We have a sense of purpose. Peter speaks about this. He says, every one of us have been given a stewardship by God, 1 Peter 4. Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's manifold grace. Jesus would often tell parables about his disciples. And he would use images of stewards. And he would talk about people being given trusts. And he would urge you and me to invest what was given to us in order to bring some return against it, to make wise use of our time and our resources and our life even. This was the mindset of our Savior. This is the standard by which we're measured. Divine mandate, divine sense of submission, be constantly looking for the best use of our time and our lives. And at the end of the gospel, Jesus very clearly transferred that stewardship to us. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is the mindset by which we measure ourselves. This is what we think about as we move forward. That leads naturally to the third mindset, the third attitude that we can see here in Christ in verse 39. And this was his commitment to proclamation, his commitment to preaching. Mark tells us in verse 39 that because of this sense of burden, he didn't return to Capernaum, but he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, And casting out demons. This was just the natural consequence of his sense of purpose. It was his commitment to proclaim the good news and to preach it in places that were needed. That he knew were needed. Peter was telling him everyone wants him back in Capernaum. He was begging him to stay there because Luke, uh, excuse me, Peter didn't understand the commitments that were in Christ's heart. Many people don't understand Jesus' commitments. It was all for him about proclamation, about a message, and getting a message out. Even the healing was about that. Even the healing was in order to give testimony and to give validation to his message of who he is. 
And that's what had happened in Capernaum. Adequate evidence had been given. Adequate testimony had been seen. They had every reason now to believe his message because they had seen his works. This may be confusing to some people who think that Jesus' ministry is all about the compassion and all about the healing and helping as many people as possible. If that were the case, he would have gone back to Capernaum. There were still sick people there. See, that's not why the healing was taking place. It wasn't primarily about healing people. Primarily about the message. Primarily about the proclamation. That's his purpose. That's what he was committed to. Plenty of people, including Peter, thought this is what ministry was all about. Jesus just hanging out here. This is easy. This is what everyone wants. This is what everyone's looking for. But for Jesus, this wasn't just about finding a crowd, finding a comfortable place, helping a bunch of people. For him, it was about a message. It was about proclamation. And for him, it's time to go find other people now. For him, it's time to go find some people who haven't heard, who haven't seen the evidence. It's time to expose others to the truth of the gospel to call them to a commitment to Christ. For Christ having this message and confining it to Capernaum would have been unthinkable. It would have been unthinkable. There was a sense of urgency to find some other group, some other place that needed to hear. An interesting story I read a while back. Many years ago, an Italian recluse died And friends who began to go through his meager belongings, sorting through his things there in Italy, found in his attic some 240 expensive, very expensive and rare violins. A few more were stuffed in the dresser drawers. Virtually all of this guy's money had been spent purchasing these violins. And yet, ironically, in his misdirected devotion to these instruments and stashing them away, he actually had deprived the world of the beauty of the music that they made. No one ever played them. No one ever heard them. In fact, I read that it was 147 years before the first Stradivarius violin, the first one the Stradivarius ever made, was actually played and we hear things like that and we think, what, a, what, a, what a, a crime, what a shame for someone to take all that stuff, all those beautiful instruments and to just hoard them all into a place and not let anyone enjoy them for the purpose they were made for. I suppose we can be like that with our faith. We can hide the great treasure that we have. We can mute the music we're supposed to make. By not sharing the light, by not sharing the gospel, by not handing out the bread to spiritually hungry people, the treasure to spiritual beggars. Researchers have estimated that as many as 95% of Christians go through an entire year without ever sharing their faith one time. An entire year. And they haven't shared their faith with one person. 95%. That means there's 95% of the world's spiritual violins that aren't even being played. 95% of the true riches of Christ that aren't being freely shared like they need to be. It's amazing, really, when you think about it, that God could have shared the gospel any way he wanted to. Could have sent angels. Could have sent special messengers. He could have come himself and just done the job. But he didn't. He chose us, you and I. This was the burden that Christ felt. This is a burden that every great servant feels. This is what drives them, what dictates their life. These are the commitments that they have behind the scenes. It's not just the activity. That's not the way you measure yourself. It's the mindset. 
It's the burdens. It's the priorities. I pray the Lord would align ours with His. That we, when we're fully trained, will be like our Savior. You know, I don't think it's a coincidence necessarily that it is when Peter finds Jesus after hours of prayer that Jesus so clearly articulates these things. Because it was no doubt those seasons of prayer that continually brought him back to them. May the Lord do the same in our life. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for a time to reflect, a time to measure ourselves, a time to think about the year ahead. Time to look at our own prayer life, our own proclamation. And Lord, we're challenged, we're humbled as we look at our Savior. So holy and pure and righteous and set apart and yet still so committed to being with you. How much more we who need daily your cleansing, your sanctifying work, your your reorienting of our minds on eternity. How much more do we need to commit ourselves to those times? Help us, Lord, to be heavenly minded people. Lift our hearts and minds above this world and all the frivolous and passing things out of which we make idols. Set us back on a pathway like our Savior. We can be like Him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.